0: Hello, and welcome to Human Is My Label. This is your host, Emily Curry. I am a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sibling, and a former athlete. I work full-time. I am the founder of Rapid, a nonprofit organization, and I'm legally blind. I am so excited about opening the conversation about everything equity. We will primarily be talking about disability, as that is my lived experience, and it is often the minority left out of the equity conversation. I am passionate about equity for all identities, as I have family members from the communities of color, LGBTQIA, disabilities, and we span all ages. It is my goal to normalize these conversations, get people comfortable with the uncomfortable, and include everyone. After all, we are all human. Hello everyone, welcome and thank you for coming back to hear another exciting interview with uh, myself and we have Alexis Brawley-James today. And she is the owner and a, a consultant for Construct the Present. And so we are gonna talk about everything equity, like always. So Alexis, it's great to have you on.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to be in conversation with you.
0: Definitely. And um, so let's just start off right off the bat. As you know, this is a podcast all about equity, everything equity. And so um, if you could tell the audience a little bit about yourself, about your identity, how you identify yourself and then just kind of your journey from where you are now here with uh, Construct the Present and how you got here would be a, a good starting point.
1: Yeah, um, okay, so that's a lot. (laughs) Let's start with a little (laughs) bit about me. Um, I've been born and raised in the Portland metro area. Um, Most of the time I was in Beaverton and have lived in Portland proper since college where I went to Portland State University and got my master's degree from Lewis and Clark. Um, I started my career as an educator. I was a teacher and then an administrator at the middle school level. Um, I identify as black and biracial. So my mom is white and my dad is black. Um, And my journey to consulting has been a winding one. Like I said, I started in education Mm -hmm. and when I became a teacher, the conversation of equity or the opportunity gap, disproportionate discipline, all of those words was really at the forefront. And so immediately in my career, we started talking about how do you remove barriers for children and Mm -hmm. communities of color. Um, Before that, I obviously was a student of history because I taught history and government. And so you can't be a student (laughs) of government and history without understanding the history of race and racism and the role that it's played and impacted in our world. So I've kind of been learning about systemic racism since high school and lived it you know since birth um i am not you know i look black (laughs) you know there's some people (laughs) who identify as black and are able to walk in the world and maybe blend in or um pass as white and i'm not one of those people so (laughs) yeah definitely Um, let's see what else would i say oh it's kind of my consulting journey i um started teaching and I then was consulting with other districts and other school buildings, teaching um, equitable instructional practices, equitable discipline practices. And that really started me consulting. Yeah. That was back in um, 2015. And then I started my own company, finally doing it not as a sole proprietor, but as an LLC in 2017. Oh, okay. And I primarily consulted at first with nonprofits and educational institutions, but, um, people started to reach out to me from businesses and for profit. And so in the last 18 months, I've started to work with, um, corporate clients and it's definitely a different conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Sometimes I find myself, um, like yeah okay equity should be a part of everything but how do we message this for the construction industry (laughs) or (laughs) uh, what's the value add for someone who makes office furniture you know it's just sort of exactly it definitely needs to be there but sort of how is the part that i continue to wrap my head around in particular the conversation about justice because i think you know if you think about equity diversity, inclusion, and justice as the kind of four pillars. Equity fits really well in the corporate sector. Inclusion, Mm -hmm. I think, fits really well in the corporate sector. And diversity fits really well. But the justice piece, I continue to bang my head against the wall. And like, what does that look like, aside from reparations and giving land back, which corporations are not um, in a place to do mentally, spiritually, or emotionally? (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: I want to go back to just a just a second with the the history teacher piece so Mm -hmm. you know it's Black History Month right now obviously and you know there's so many Oregonians especially who don't understand the history of Portland and I was just having this conversation with another DEI consultant the other day about you know people will say the black history of Portland, it's not the <laughs> black history, it's the history of Portland. Right. Um, so as a Portland native, you know, this wasn't part of my education as a Portland native uh, uh, learning about Vanport and learning about those things. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about that, was it a shift for you when you're looking at, obviously you're raised in your family with, um, you know, black history as part of your family, but, when you saw that discrepancy in the education system and then going to want to teach that and change that kind of narrative was that easy was it hard did you get pushback back there how was that experience um for you
1: oh yeah that that is really interesting so i'm trying to think when i was in high school um i don't think we were talking about Vanport and the history of racism in Portland. It wasn't until college that I really started to learn about it through the Uh lens of hate crimes and um, the the many hate crimes that have happened in Portland that go unknown, that was in college. And so then when I became a teacher, you know, if anybody knows anything about teaching, there's particular standards for each grade. And so it's eighth grade where we focus on Oregon history. Mm -hmm. And then again, or in fourth grade and eighth grade, I know for sure eighth grade because most of my experiences in middle school, high school. So eighth grade, you are required to teach Oregon history, and oftentimes, you know, I'm sure most um, Oregonians who've been born and raised in the education system remember the Oregon Trail. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? <laughs> but when I was a teacher, actually, in in this, I became professional about 2008. There were teachers who were teaching Vanport to middle school. Oh and you know not everybody because it doesn't say explicitly in the standard it has changed since but it didn't say at that time that you should teach about races, race and racism but i think um, because we were on the cutting edge and this was like very much i think in response to the election of president barack obama which Uh had changed the conversation and brought race to the forefront um, people wanted to own that history and so it was you know hodgepodge and definitely not to the level that it is now. So that wasn't necessarily where I experienced the pushback, where I experienced the pushback, which I think very much mirrors what we see today is in more subtle ways in the way that um, black boys and girls were punished in the mm-hmm.
0: classroom, mm-hmm.
1: penalized for really small things like talking out of turn, not having materials, coming in late, um, the perception that they had slammed a door when really the door was just really heavy. And what I saw in my career is black and brown um, boys and girls and um, non-binary children being excluded from the classroom and being mm-hmm. held in what we called in-school suspension, which is essentially timeout. You sit in a room, you do worksheets for the entire day, but you're separated from your peers or suspended being asked to go home and stay home for multiple days at a time for really small things. Mm. And that it wasn't necessarily the content. And of course, it was really confusing for me because I was young, you know, I started my career when I was 23. And so it was confusing for me to see teachers who were passionate about teaching race and, Slavery and social justice and conversations, and then get mad when um, black boys would raise their voice or uh-huh. be emotionally triggered by the conversation, you know. And so, I was it was really hard, and I, t- I grew up a lot in the education system as a teacher <laughs> more than I did then as a, a child because it was just like the systemic nature of racism. I think we just. We don't talk about how it shows up in the school system enough.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it really is interesting that you bring that up. And then now that you're in the corporate side, I'm sure as both of us see inside corporations and organizations of all sizes, the same types of behaviors, you know, we put out a good line or a good picture or a good statement on the outside that says we're we we you know value diversity or or whatever the case may be but then the actions inside the organization still don't match just like in the school system right. <laughs>
1: yeah and that i think that's part of the reason why i wanted to go into the corporate sector cuz i had built such strong relationships with my children and families and i was like they're going to go to the workplace and they're going to experience mm. this same kind of oppression and so i didn't feel like i was able to make a significant impact in education just because it was kind of a constant turnover children and teachers and i Mm -hmm. started to feel like i was being asked to perpetrate racism on behalf of the system Mm. i was like i can't do this anymore i wasn't sleeping (laughs) um moving into the corporate sector i was like well perhaps i can have a better or deeper impact because i can change the experience once they get you know to their professional job obviously there's a whittling down of the talent pool that happens systematically but the people who do get to go to corporate jobs, perhaps I could make a difference there. And I think you're exactly right. It's subtle, you know, the tone policing, Mm -hmm. um, what my friend Sherry Dunn calls competency checking, (laughs) resume checking, all that stuff that happens that is isn't a policy. And people are like, I'm not racist, but I'm going to question everything you do. Because my inherent bias is I think you're stupid.
0: (laughs) Oh, I laugh just because it, it (laughs) you don't say that in your head as a white person but that is definitely what is coming out of your mouth or your actions um and and it's it's horrible (laughs) (laughs) um so you've made this shift in the corporate world uh what's your approach what's your if you had your ideal corporate client how would you start with them and they were just like yes alexis we want everything like where do you find the most impact in the corporate world um, starting and then, obviously, this isn't a, a program. It's something that needs ongoing work. But w- but, how do you approach an organization who's open and will write checks all day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to introduce to all of you Tim Salen, the sponsor of our podcast today. And Tim is with Remax Equity Group, and man, he's different than all the thousands of agents you probably already know. When you're looking to buy or sell a home and you want somebody who cares, you want somebody who is patient, you want somebody who gives great advice, and you want somebody who is going to get you what you need, you need a call tip. Well, I
1: think I have brought a lot of my teaching lens and so. I start from an equity assessment, which in teaching we call kind of like a formative assessment or a pre-assessment. So trying Uh to understand what the learner or what the corporation already has. What are their strengths? What are their um, barriers to diversity, equity, inclusion? And then because oftentimes clients come to me and I'm sure they come to you the same way and they think they want something, but they actually (laughs) need something different, right? (laughs) Yeah. And that can be really um, hard to communicate without being able to peek behind the curtain or kind of look through what's already existing. So I always feel in a better position when I can actually look at current policies, interview staff, look at the most recent survey if they haven't done a survey, do an inclusion and belonging survey and look at that data and then make assessments on, okay, here's the things you're doing really well, let's magnify those or amplify those. And then here's the things that need polishing or complete um shifts and then work kind of from the areas of strength to build processes for the barriers Mm, mm,
0: i love that i love that so so you'll take the company through that whole process and what if they say yes this is what i want this is what you get are you do you plug into that as well or do you try to try to walk them back a couple steps if that's what they need
1: Oh, okay. like if what what they say they want is not actually what they would need. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I think earlier in my career, I would try to do whatever the client said, but now after some years of experience, I kind—I of, just try to be more direct. And I'm like, yeah, I know you need a marketing campaign because you want to be able to come up with the external statement and you want to respond to these things. But let me tell you that that's the last thing. And that's not something, <laughs> you know, like I used to be like, OK, let's do that. But now I'm just like, nope, this is my process. This is what I do. I know that it works. If you don't think that it's going to work for you, then there's a lot of other DEI consultants who, and I'm happy to give you referrals. You know, (laughs) (laughs) like I just, I've, it's really hard being a consultant because, you know, you, I want to be bespoke and create unique processes, but also there's patterns and there's systems that are, I've created and I know are tried and true. And so it's like, I can't. Put a circle into a triangle it'll have gaps you know exactly
0: exactly um so this is hard work for especially those of us who live the identities that you know i'm in there trying to look at accessibility and disability all day long and have people pushing back and pushing back you the same thing you have clients trying to move racial equity forward um what has been your process um in self-care and 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 finding those boundaries because it's hard the work's hard and I don't think people really realize that for all of us
1: no you know I was just talking to someone today and this isn't a 40 hour week work week you know I don't think I could do anti-oppression work 40 hours a week I would Mm -hmm. just drown in sorrow (laughs) so part of my self-care routine is well first I go to therapy every Monday at three so good good I'm a good 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 advocate for counseling for sure nobody call me at that time because I'm busy um, (laughs) and I think like what I find really helpful about therapy is just a chance for me to express all the things that I'm not able to say to clients because it's not always kind or helpful yes yes Yes. You know, I have a lot of thoughts that just don't need to be said out loud but that's a place where I can like play with them and be like is this helpful but, you know and then <laughs> um I also really enjoy listening to music and podcasts now <laughs> yay um so that's always a chance for me to kind of check out from conversations because a lot of my work is either talking to someone or listening to someone else talk Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. so any opportunity to kind of turn off my brain or that empath side of me and just listen to music is a good opportunity. And then um, I've tried to curate a really close friend group of people where I know I can be 100% myself and not um, overthink because I tend to overthink a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And that's, that's the, the, the... For you.
1: Maybe I could learn something. <laughs>
0: I was asking you to see if I could get any tips, but (laughs) I think think that piece, (laughs) no, and I think the piece of, the, the thing I struggle with is the difference between disability justice and racial justice and this whole oppression Olympics perception that's out there and finding my place in the world and in the DEI professionals, you know, a a lot of the there are very few disability justice or disability advocates out there that are doing corporate training. And so there isn't really my tribe, if you will, that I can go to. Um, You know, I have a few close friends here and there um, that I that I vent to, if you will. But it's finding that place in in the DEI space of saying, I have these problems, too, but Mm -hmm. I'm still a white person. (laughs) yeah <laughs> um and not being seen as the white person in that moment is impossible because i'm white and that's the way it is but knowing that these struggles are there for the disability community as well and trying to find voice in that and find the the self care piece in that is that i'm i'm in the the work for multiple reasons with my family being biracial and having family members lgbtqia and all of the things about me and my family that i'm passionate about and not bringing that (coughs) that pass that i don't get a pass because my husband's black (laughs) excuse me um i don't um he's not going to completely understand my world i'm not going to completely understand his but we can build those bridges um between the two worlds and try to find those that that compassion for each other and we have been probably our best um venting allies in in our journeys in equity as a whole um you know him coming from the racial equity lens and saying, but my people have experienced this and I can be with him as honest and say, but my people have experienced this and isn't it similar and the same? And how different is it? And why is it different? And how do we approach the work? Mm -hmm. Um, This is all a really long-winded question or answer to say that it is hard to find that self-care. And I have found just, especially with our own businesses, um, just shutting down every once in a while, not checking emails, not answering the phone, not being worried about the pennies that are, you know, are not or are coming in. Um, That's been the best thing for me in the last, you know, year or so is just saying, nope, today I'm done.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) And taking that time and finding those moments, yeah, that you can play the music or go for a walk in the middle of the day when you see the sky is blue and you have an hour, go, just go, just leave the office. And that's what I've had to do, really in yeah. the past in the past year for myself
1: yeah because i really see self-care as like minimizing harm because when i'm in a shitty mood i will probably interact and make can that can spill on to other people and if in this work i'm trying to create healing and connection it's not helpful <clears throat> for me to not be in a healing space
0: yeah exactly exactly and when you're frustrated and like i made a call this morning i was like i just have to yell at you and cuss a whole bunch because i'm so frustrated i've had five conversations around accessibility and why a video needs to be accessible and i'm so done <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah and so yeah i think just having those moments of venting and the place to vent is it's extremely helpful
1: mm-hmm
0: um what do you think makes you stand out from other dei consultants like you said there's so many we are both in a group of you know 70 to 100 on our list and apparently there's 70 on another list somewhere <laughs> um but what do you if somebody was to say why should i go with alexis what what makes her different what makes her better or worse <clears throat> um what would you say
1: Ooh, <clears throat> <laughs> you're right there is just a lot of people i think something that i bring that's unique Um, is the lens of trauma-informed care. So creating trainings and strategies that really honor the fact that racism is traumatizing, both Mm -hmm. for white folks and people of color. I mean, it's just everyone, (laughs) it's traumatizing. And so doing the work in a way that is really mindful of trauma-informed care, which comes from my education background, and then also the lens of being able to see um gaps and that sort i can see kind of um where there's pieces missing and i think that comes from my lived experience as a biracial black woman i have navigated these two cultures um an urban black experience and a rural white experience my entire life and because those experiences are vastly different i see differences really quickly and can notice like uh-huh. oh i this might be at play, or I think this might be happening or, you know, like culture is something that I've had to navigate um, very early on. And I think that that's not unique to me. But I think the way that it's impacted my strategic mindset Mm. is something that's unique. And then my educator background, I don't know too many um, other DEI consultants who spent time in the classroom and have that adult learning model. Yeah. Um, And that's not to say that um, you have to have it to be good at what you do. I just think that's something unique that I bring.
0: Absolutely. You, you can get everybody to pay attention, which is nice. Yeah, <laughs>
1: make sure they have pencils. <laughs> yes,
0: I'm get really your- good at that. <laughs> Students, get ready. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so a hard one. That is probably a very long question uh, answer. Um, <laughs> You know, what drives you when the days are long and you've had the same conversations over and over and over again and you are physically, mentally, emotionally just exhausted? What drives you to keep Mm -hmm. going?
1: Well, I don't have any children of my own, but my baby sister, she's not a baby anymore. She's 28, but I will always (laughs) be my baby sister. (laughs) Yes. Um, She has four boys and they run the gamut of um, vanilla to 70% cacao. You know, like they, (laughs) they have all different skin tones, all different looks, but the one thing is they're all black. And so when I get really tired or I'm like... I don't know if I can cuss, but I'm like, fuck, I don't want to do this. Like why I, I should just get a like a corporate job where I just get to clock in, clock out. <laughs> I don't make ice cream, paint nails. I don't know. You know, um, I think about them and that they're the reason that I do the work is like, I've experienced enough oppression f- for a lifetime, but if I can at all make the world that they live in a little bit less oppressive and a little bit more space for them to really be themselves, I will, die really happy (laughs)
0: yeah yeah it is it is definitely with my kids all being mixed race and like very similar Mm
1: -hmm. you know all
0: three of them are different colors of of brown and white and yes and (laughs) who their personalities same who all over the board um but when we look at differences and you know the impact that we can have on these kids and and that's how i and every one of my presentations is especially around disability it's If you have influence in a child's life, whether that's your child, your niece, your nephew, your granddaughter, grandson, whoever set expectations for those children and make sure that they aren't being enabled or, you know, given the pass to just do whatever because of whatever their situation is, they need to have that uplifting and that positive um, person who's going to push them and give them the tools they need, of course. But we need to change the stigma around these kids. This, mm-hmm. If we can change the generations below us, absolutely, we're going to make make an impact. And all those adults that are dragging along will get there eventually.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think, like, um, my one nephew in particular, Hank, he um, is the middle child, and he just has, like, a very strong... He's only seven, and he already has a really strong relationship to authority. Mm. You know, he'd- He doesn't like to be told what to do. He's the boss of him and his body. And like, that's great. But I worry, you know, as he gets older, that gets perceived as aggression or that Mm. gets uh, perceived as dangerous. And it's like, my biggest fear would be he's out in the world and someone, you know, talks to him the wrong way and that's the end of his life. And I think that that's a very real concern. And maybe doing DEI work in the corporate space isn't gonna change that, but my hope is that there's going to be, you know, similar to like with COVID, there'll be some herd immunity, you know, where all the white folks out here, it may not be you in particular. And I don't mean you, Emily, but I'm talking to, um, in the corporate space, but perhaps you will then be a relationship with the person who trains the police, you know, like I just, I hope spread and seed out so that that will be the change that happens. Absolutely. And maybe that person won't call the police on Hank, and Hank will be a little bit safer.
0: <laughs> that will be Kennedy, my daughter. <laughs>
1: they have you can I've like it's been amazing to see how kids develop their personality so early. I'm like, oh. you are like a whole person in a tiny seven year old's body.
0: <laughs> oh, and they think they are grown as grown yeah. kids. They're, I'm like, well, you are eight years
1: old. <laughs> I am like, yeah, I'm like, geez, Hank, simmer down. He's like, I'm a professional. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're a professional what? You learned a new word, okay.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. That sounds like Kennedy. Oh man. Okay, so what is one of either your most successful or impactful or um yeah, any just standout experience, I'll say in the corporate world that you feel like this is awesome this like they get it and they're trying they're not perfect because none of us are in this journey but they're on board and you have to mention the company if you don't want but what has been one of your biggest stories where you took them from point a to point b and you're like heck yeah this is why i'm doing my job
1: um like tell you about the experience yeah
0: yeah just about (laughs) the experience or, or where they started and where they where they grew to
1: for. Yeah, I think um, I had this company who was predominantly white um, and um, rural, and they mm. were really early in their journey, but there was a lot of passion and interest in having the conversation and a willingness to just completely restructure everything they did. Like they were not attached to anything, and as long as there was... Um, support and support look like me attending meetings or answering questions or in the middle of the night when the leader was like uh, are we making the right decision <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> talking talking a, a lot of consulting is sometimes feels like therapy but um yeah yeah and so i think i was really impressed with just the willingness to lean completely into the process mm. and do it um without apologizing and there's always going to be a little bit of uh speed bumps yeah i think speed bumps a good metaphor because you have to slow down a little bit Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's always gonna be speed bumps because this is hard work and it's emotional work which sometimes and i think for a long time emotion wasn't allowed into the corporate space Mm but I've just seen a complete shift, not only visually in the people that they hire, who they see competent, who gets promoted, but also in the way that they interact with their customers and the reputation that they have because they're walking their talk and um, people now seek them as an employer and as their products um, because of the work that they've done around diversity, equity, inclusion and positioning themselves and not positioning themselves from a marketing place where they're like doing posts on Instagram or on their website, but their reputation of like, this is a company that shows up for people of color and for marginalized identities. And that has been really cool to see. Cause I Uh I, definitely, I didn't do that on my own. You know, I wouldn't have been able to do that without a client who was willing to take risks. Exactly. But I think that's
0: a good point right there to even just say out loud is that you could hire a DEI consultant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They cannot do the work for you.
1: Right. Right. No, it's not how it works. (laughs) (laughs) I think sometimes people, well, none of the clients I've gotten recently think that I'm going to do all of the work, but I do think that there's like a misperception that the client directs the work it's like no yeah (laughs) yeah i'm not an employee i'm a consultant i tell you what needs to happen i offer (laughs) advice and yeah so yeah
0: (laughs) oh man okay so i think i know the answer to this question but if you had a magic wand Mm. what would you change in the big picture and how do you do that in baby steps every day in your work
1: (laughs) oh gosh that is a big question I guess if if I had a magic wand, and this is both professional, but also for uh, personal, I mean, and for people who look like me, I just wish that Black people were seen as human. Huh. And, you know, I think the way I do that in Baby Steps is, one, just waking up in the morning, like <laughs> just my existence sort yeah. of, I hope, <laughs> is humanizing <laughs> the Black experience. Yeah. Um, Um, but also challenging the subtleties when people use words like aggressive or direct or mean, you know, to describe the way people communicate, um, and it doesn't always have to be a black person, but I think that they are subscribing, ascribing ascribing that characteristic challenge and say like, well, what about it was mean? or what about it felt aggressive? And just trying to unpack that with people in their mind to really call attention to like, okay, so the direct communication didn't land well for you. You Uh felt you were being judged. Okay, well, let's say I felt judged rather than that person is aggressive. You know, like let's own our own experience. And I hope, you know, and then I try to draw the line for them in saying like, you know, historically, there's some stereotypes around black people. And I think you might be leaning into some of those, but um, it's hard because I, I also think being Black makes what I say sound biased, you know? I think it would people might receive it a little bit better if I was white or uh. Latinx or Asian. People would be like, oh yeah, you're not biased, so you must really know, so I must uh. listen to you. <laughs> Where sometimes it feels like people are like, yeah, yeah, Alexis, of course, of you're going to say yeah. that because you're Black. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, really, it's true. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> don't know what else. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, I, I get that. So I want to take you back so, to you said you wish that black people were seen as human. And I understand that. And I love that you said human since it's human is my label. Um, but for those of people who may be new to the racial equity work or not, you know, uh, as far down the journey as many of us are, What is that? Why do you say, why do you say that you wish they were seen as human? What does that look like out in the world? Why, why, why is it perceived that they are not human?
1: Yeah, some, you know, I mean, black lives matter is (laughs) (laughs) where that comes out of, right? It's just like wanting to feel like we matter, like I matter, like my life matters that I am a person and I have feelings and I have thoughts, not that I'm this like stereotype or, um, archetype, whether, Uh um, a villain or, you know, um, all the stereotypes of being lazy, stupid, aggressive, Uh not valuing things. And I think that, that is sometimes the perception that I feel and I see other, black folks experience and I think I see white people and just people in general see white people as human as having like a full range of emotions and being able to really authentically feel empathy for Uh white folks and I think there's still a lot of people who don't feel or unable to access empathy for the black experience Uh and deeper than just like oh yeah that's hard but like what it must be like to be black in the United States. Mm -hmm. If You really think about what that is, then people would act differently on a day-to-day basis.
0: I think it was you that in our, one of our groups, you, we were talking, I believe about the protests or George Floyd, somewhere around that time. And I believe it was you that said, if it was a dog that was shot in the middle of the street, there would be more uproar than, if it's a black man or a black woman shot in the street. Mm
1: -hmm. And that
0: comparison in my mind as a white person was like, damn, okay. That really speaks to that humanity of if you see a dog get shot (laughs) or Mm -hmm. when uh, that, is it Amy Cooper? Was that her name? The white woman in the park?
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) When
0: people were worried about the care of the dog more than the black man who was, could potentially have been very much harmed if the you know police would have showed up and heard what she was saying, mm-hmm. um, that people were more concerned about the treatment of the dog than the human in the situation. And I think that really spoke to, mm-hmm. you know, that piece around just being seen as human um, is, is so important and, and, and a wish of the black community. So, yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I hate that. And I love that. That would be your... Your, uh, I like that statement of yours.
1: My for magic sure. wand, <laughs> your magic
0: wand, yes. Okay, so before we wrap up, where can people find you if corporations are interested? If, um, people are wanting to bring you on board, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, the best way to get in contact with us would be to, um, go to our website, which is www.constructthepresent.com. <laughs> um, or email um, support at constructthepresent.com. And um, I think that's the best the best way.
0: Cool. Are you on any of the social platforms?
1: Oh, yeah. We are on Instagram, ctppdx, and Twitter. Same, ctppdx. Not on Facebook. And then, obviously, I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. Under my name, Alexis Brawley-James.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And are there any wrapping up thoughts that you want to send out to the to the listeners today?
1: No, but this has been like so fun. I never would (laughs) have thought being on a podcast would be fun, but it is just like having a a, an authentic conversation about cool shit. I like it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Well, good. Well, thank you for coming on and we will be posting this. I don't know when and I'll. Figure that all out so
1: <laughs> you yeah, know, record that part later.
0: <laughs> yes, I'll figure that out and add that in there. So, thank you so much for joining me here today at Human is my label. Don't forget to subscribe, share this with your friends, families, and co workers. Get out there, get comfortable with the uncomfortable, include everyone, and push yourself to be better every day. If you're interested in coaching or corporate training, or learning more about RAPID, visit us at rapidoregon.org. That's R-A-P-I-D-O-R-E-G-O-N.org. You can find me at emily.curry on Instagram, and all my other social handles are below. Have a great day, and I can't wait to see you next week.